I-V-M Before we begin, here's a quick announcement. Design Up Conference is back with the energy, the inspiration and the excitement for the 6th year. 25 speakers over 2 days, 8 unconference events and endless networking. On 17th and 18th of September in Namma, Bangalore. Be there, check out the buzz, the speakers. Register now on 2022.designup.io. This is Audio Gyan, and I am your host, Kedar Nimkar. Welcome to a deep dive into the minds of luminaries from the Indian creative world. This audio gan is in association with The Drawing Board. The Drawing Board is an international architecture platform based in India where students can test their understanding and skills in shaping the way communities live and thrive while preserving local heritage. The Drawing Board has been actively running architecture competition for undergraduate students since 2016. It was conceptualized by Mindspace Architects and Rohan Builders. This year, they are back in action with a live event Architecture undergrad students can submit their project ideas on the theme of designing a memorial for Charles Correa. Last date to submit your concepts is 1st of October 2022. More details in the show notes and thedrawingboard.in. Today we have one of the jury members uh, with us on AudioGAN, the well-known Cape Town-based architect and urban designer Henry Comrie. Henry is a minimalist or should we say reductivist, uh, we'll explore that in the conversation. He's an architect and an urban designer who enjoys working through complex problems to arrive at simple and logical solutions that hold wide appeal. He's a founding partner at URBA Urba Architects and urban designer from Cape Town, South Africa. Henry has been practicing architecture for nearly three decades. He was a lead urban designer for FIFA World Cup Stadium in Cape Town and several large mixed-use prisons, as well as architect for several prominent educational and residential buildings across a range of scales. Today, we'll try and document some of his thoughts on minimalistic, uh, as I said, reductivist architecture and a bit about what is good architecture according to him and what will he be evaluating in the entries at the drawing board competition. So that was a long intro, but thanks, uh, Henry, for giving your time. And it's a real honor to have you on the show. Thank you, Kedar. Um, and from my side, uh, such a privilege to be invited to adjudicate. Uh, there's always something to learn. And I'm sure I'm going to be learning a lot uh, in visiting India for the competition. Awesome. Uh, so yeah, as, as uh, on the backdrop of the drawing board, uh, we'll we'll have few questions in the end but just wanted to understand your philosophy and your definition of architecture and i've come up with like few questions uh based on my uh, sort of preliminary research uh, would love to uh, explore what's what's in the conversation so first i'll, I'll start off with asking say like a very basic definition just to set context is what's your definition of architecture and this has been my classic question because uh, as people grow in their careers and then uh, have more experience, the definition changes, the worldview changes, the understanding or the reflection happens. So yeah, what's your definition and how has it changed or has it changed over three decades? Uh, thanks for the question, Kira. Yeah, I think that the definition of architecture is always going to be, be subjective. If you, if, if you ask two different architects, they'll have a different definition. 
If I ask you, you'll have a different definition to me. And that's healthy because it's all about diversity in the end. So there's a place for somebody like me calling myself a minimalist, as you say, we'll explore that. And then, and then somebody else saying that they this or that or the other in terms of their approach. Uh, you use the term reflective. Uh, it's a very appropriate term as far as I'm concerned. The older you get, the more you value that definition or that term in the context of architecture. When you're young, you just start practicing. You think you're there to learn to build a building. And if you can do it technically, you're an architect, and that's good enough. And so we're all a bit naive at that level of our development. And you, you become, in a way, infatuated by things. You get influenced by things very quickly. But you haven't seen much. And so as you develop as an architect and, and you start uh, practicing, but at the same time looking, traveling, studying, doing postgraduate studies, for me going to India, your, your view of architecture constantly evolves and changes. Um, I think in the world of architecture, you'll have signature architects that get, in a way, trapped in a certain signature and people come to them for that style or that way of working. For me, that's not an appropriate way of seeing architects because, in a way, it's boring. It's limiting it, it closes down things, it closes down options, it closes down your ability to, uh, to meet different types of clients, to work for different communities and so on. So, so my, my view, and it's also maybe because I'm from South Africa, um, with our own challenges, is, is one of, of listening. I mean, we've made many mistake, mistakes in this country where people profess it's now our turn, all of us, to learn and to listen and to, to absorb cultures and so on. So, so in terms of that, um, but just the question you've asked, how's architecture evolved? I think it's it's evolved for the for good and bad. I think systems have come into it uh, with sustainability consciousness. But practices are massively large now; they're global. Some practices have three thousand people working in it. So the chance of of getting hold of somebody like me, who has a as an identity, becomes more and more and more difficult. So foster and partners you'll have. One foster, everybody wants to talk to foster, and foster says, I just can't get around to, to everybody. I've got an office of 3,000 people. So that connection of architecture to individuals in the identities, the Doshis is becoming, the Louis Kahn's, uh, uh, the Charles Correa's, is becoming increasingly difficult, uh, not only in India, but globally. So that, uh, that sort of looking up towards an architect and, and in, in a way hanging on to their words and their wisdom, it's becoming difficult. We're all hanging onto the systems now, and the systems often improve sustainability, but it also bullies us because you arrive at the office and the machine tells you what to do. You have to log in, and it gives you certain algorithms, artificial intelligence. Elon Musk believes we all want to go to Mars. I don't want to go to Mars. I'm happy on Earth. You know, so so in a way, technology is forcing the definition of architecture, and then also the image. For me, good architecture is not something that blows you away. It's something that you're fond of. Um, and what I'm saying with that is good architecture sustains your interest through the way that you engage with it. It's not something that you appreciate at a distance as an object. Uh, and a lot of the, the appreciation of architecture now is through the object. People look at their Instagram posts, they scroll through it, and they look at these images, which is actually very superficial. It's just the external form of the building. It's not about the on-the-ground, everyday experience of every person that we are accountable to as architects in the way that we design space, uh, so that, that we've got that responsibility. So I think it's changed enormously. So I'm, in a way, still a bit old-school, old-fashioned, and maybe I'm also too old to change now. I've said that quite often. You know, you, you in a way, get uh, sort of, you, you get sort of fixed in your ways, 
And again, it has its benefits, it's got its upsides and it's got, got its downsides. Hmm. Very interesting. But then we have this sort of, I'm sure there's a principle across disciplines within the design field as well. Uh, that good design is almost invisible design, right? So then when you talk about making identities or, or making people sort of connect with it, so how do you try and like strive for that balance that the, that the place is invisible yet it is very comforting? or, or yes. maybe inclusive or maybe, I mean, yeah, yes. sustainable is again now abused, but you know what I mean. Yes. <laughs> Firstly, I, I do agree with you. I, the, the best thing about working in teams is becoming more important. And the fact that we, we acknowledge that our own knowledge is limited. And so there will always be people who are more technically minded, people that are more proficient at certain things that can calculate the benefits of a building, say invent and environmentally, it goes into a spreadsheet and it's almost unquestionable. I think the other part, the, the almost spiritual part of architecture, the artistic side of architecture, is something that I hang on to. I still believe that an architect has to have that passion, like he would have for art, to go to an art gallery, not for any superficial reason. You just want to be inspired by the piece of art. So as, uh, the other definition for in terms of architecture and in con the context of it, what you've just asked, a good architecture for me is architecture that seems like it's always been there. It's almost like you can take the author out of it because it's so well thought through in terms of people's relationship with form and space that it's not who was the architect. It's just something, and, and for, for me, I love to go back to buildings that I've designed, to campuses and to that World Cup stadium precinct, for instance, to see how people use the space. So to become a fly on the wall, I don't walk around there saying, I designed this and profess that or stand on a stage. Uh, that is the last thing I'd like to do. Uh, but but I found, you know, ironically, just while I'm on that topic, uh, the last time I was, I was at a campus where I did two buildings, uh, you know, the students started coming to me and they asked me, am I the architect? <laughs> and I said to them, how do you know that? Because they said, people don't generally take so many pictures of buildings, they said to me. So, because, so that does still happen. But this thing about good architecture being nuanced, gentle, um, because that's just what people expect. Um, and in terms of, of money and commodity, you always have clients that want to boast with their house or their head office building and so on. But that's just the very small portion of people that populate the earth. The, the, the rest of the population have no interest in that. So, mm -hmm. so architects tend to overemphasize that demand on the skill of an architect to create iconic stuff, which is glossy, which is full front or whatever you want to call it. You know, stuff which is sort of very immediate and direct. Most people just walk in the city. They're not really interested in the architects who did it, but they love the city. They love the spaces in the city. And I always say, if you build good streets, you build good cities. Because we experience, if I travel to Paris, I don't walk around there with my notebook trying to figure out who did every building. You know, in, by chance, I know who did the Eiffel Tower. And it was done by Eiffel, right? You know, is in the name. But generally, I go there and enjoy the spaces. So, and those are collections of buildings that are generally background. We call that background architecture. It's like if I if I wore a colorful shirt, I can't wear a colorful tie because the colorful tie will just disappear. So, you actually sometimes need to accept that you need more white shirt than colorful tie. If I have to use a metaphor, uh, so so because you still need the tie, the colorful tie. That's that's cool, you know. That there will always be some sort of a demand for that. You, you buy it at the airport lounge, colorful tie. I love the tie. But as I say, you, you have to have the white shirt. 
So in architecture, it's no different. And one may say, well, that's not architecture. It's only the tie that's architecture, which is for me not true. And that comes through urban design. That comes through my urban design. But we can get to that. I think that's one of your other questions. Yeah, yeah. I, it's, it's so brilliant because I can see a lot more interesting conversation unfolding here because uh, I keep telling my uh, uh, colleagues and, and people who report to me about a similar pattern. We see that similarly in music. Uh, when you want to like stress on a particular note, you keep everything in the background and you just you just highlight something very beautiful and you come back to the background bass bass tempo or something yeah i i see like it 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 to be a common pattern beautiful um yeah maybe before we get into the minimalistic uh, or the reductivistic part uh, how has your sort of relationship between say urban design and architecture uh, evolved and and how has sort of the postgraduate studies that you did in urban design uh, influenced your architecture. I mean, you were just yes. going to talk about it, yeah. Yes. Firstly, maybe I should mention every young architect that's worked in my office went on to, to study urban design or develop a real interest in it because it's one of those things you don't really appreciate how profound urban design is until you've immersed yourself into it. So this thing about not having the capacity to think about design at the scale of a city or a precinct even, because you're still busy as a, as a student of architecture to get to grips with the basics of architecture. You're still learning to, 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 to play the instrument. You can't, you can't move into a band yet. And so urban design is actually about the band. It's about this integration, about listening and integrating things. So, so the urban design studies, I studied urban design in South Africa, and then I also studied urban design in the, in the UK. Uh, and there, there are different approaches to urban design, but it's really this thing about uh, what are these com complex elements that make up a city? Uh, and you can ignore them or you can embrace them and em embrace complexity. And, and when we get to minimalism, it will be in the context of, of a complex world. So, so by doing urban design, you say, well, the world is complex enough. You can't contribute to that complexity more. You have to distill and decide what is that note, just getting it back to music again. What is that note that you have to play within the orchestra? You're not, you can't contribute to just making noise. Everything isn't jazz. Everything was jazz, it would be different. So urban design is more like a symphony orchestra. We say, this thing has all these components in it. And through, through urban design, you look very differently at, urban, at, at architecture because you see things here, there, now, then. So it, it brings a dynamic relationship into your view of design, which is not static. It's not object driven. It's process driven. So, so urban design is always about process. So the competition here is also relevant because the students are going to be designing something which is part of a process which was initiated 40, 50 years ago in the construction of that uh, institute on the river there. And, and now there's a, a challenge to say, how do I contribute to that process? Howard Correa would have liked me to contribute to that process. But again, we'll get back to that. Uh, he certainly had a very strong urban design approach to his work. Uh, and, and for me, urban design, uh, a house is like a, a small city, uh, and a city is like a, a big house. I mean, that's a, a famous quote by Aldo von Eich, that if you design, and my houses are actually like that, they've got little squares, they've got little streets in them, and so they, 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 they start assuming those qualities of a small city. Because it's all about not the rooms, but the in-between spaces. So it has a big influence on wines. And and we we you are you do two things. You you're actually between being responsive, responding to the past, 
respecting the past and being catalytic, looking forward. So urban design mediates between the past and the future, where many architects, they, they in a way prioritize the future or they prioritize the past. And for an urban design, you will have a problem with both those views because your responsibility is to mediate. You are just part of a process. You're not going to radically change the world or save it by looking back or being Elon Musk saying we want to go to Mars. You know, There's something uh, sane and sensible sitting in the middle. Very beautiful. I, I remember this quote. Uh, I, I can't pronounce the name, but it's, it's I think, Eliel... Serenin, uh, and I generally follow that principle in my design practice as well. Ki always design a thing by considering uh, in its next next larger context, right? A chair in a room, yes. a room in a house, a house in an environment, uh, and so on. I mean, an environment in a city plan. So I think that's where uh, it's it's leading to. Interesting. Um, cool. Uh, in in also your couple of articles and and uh, whatever little bit I've researched, uh, I found out that you you have you use the word craft, right? Uh, and when you are referring uh, in designing, we have a different connotation at least in India. The craft has yeah has multiple connotations, and again in the digital world it's like different. Um, would like to know your sort of understanding of craft because when it comes to minimalism, it's 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 removing stuff, so it's very tough, right? You have you have ventured into a much more tougher space uh, yes. because, yeah, craft little bit it's it's associated with little bit of ornamentation and and many other attributes. Um, yes. So how how do you see and and what's what do you def, what do you sort of want to say when you see the word craft also? Yes. Well, thank you. I think thanks for challenging me on that topic too, because I've, I've had that before where people have asked me, so what's the difference between craft and design? And I think also interesting, other people have, have called my work that, not only myself. And there's an article written on my work about my craft, uh, a, a craft orientated attitude towards building. And maybe the, the most accurate way for me to, for me would be to define this as being more traditional in the way that you make. Um, and again, this has got to do with technology where a lot of, 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 the, of the work that I see done by say younger architects in my office or students is that there's a palette of materials that is available digitally. So things become very superficial, things just get copied pasted, surfaces get introduced onto built form. Um, for instance, I mean, there are these three-dimensional packages but, but there's no, or very little, not no, very little appreciation of the brick. And you know, if you look at Louis Kahn's work in India, and he had the famous saying, let the brick be what it wants to be. And that's my connection with craft. So it's, a, it's, a, it's an affinity for the essence of the material. So we're bringing essence and craft into it again. So again, it has a dimension of minimalism, because what I say is just work with the basic materials, not what lands on your desk from a salesman this morning, you know, a fake piece of stone or a fake finish that looks like timber um, or a plastic floor that looks like timber, but if you touch it, it's cold. Um, that sort of thing, that's that's where I've, 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 in a way, brought craft into my philosophy to try and reassert what I, what I actually do in my work. So if you look at my work on my website where I practice this work, 
We, we typically like to work with materials that if you touch it, it's real. It's what it is. It is the brick. It doesn't pretend to be the brick, but it's actually something else. Um, and that has come through commercial architecture, where, where commercial architects, um, and, and we've got the profession in South Africa, quantity surveying. I don't know if you've got that in India. It's a, it's a British principle. In Europe, they don't have that, in mainland Europe, uh, where they're always trying to save without the consent of the architect necessarily, where they say, well, Mr. Architect, we see your beautiful design. We can build exactly the same building, but we will substitute your brick with a, a fake brick or just a, a sliver of brick, which is not the full brick. It's just a part of the brick. We stick it onto the wall and we will do that with a stone and we will do it with three other. And then we save the client uh, a lot of money. Um, and so if, if the architect doesn't stand on his feet, defend that dimension of architecture, it starts losing ground. Uh, because I think even a commercial building has a responsibility to be more permanent, to last more than 10 years. Because what then happens, and now we've got laser cutting. It's just a, you know, a pattern cut into a piece of sheet that looks like a tree, but it's never going to be a real tree. Um, but in five years, it starts falling apart because it's not doesn't have the integrity of the wood, the brick, the steel, the authentic original materials. I, I know that this is questioned from a sustainability point of view, but there's a there's a middle ground again. So so what I say is, as a designer, you have to you know almost have, have to overemphasize in our context the craft side of architect, which is the making and the affinity for the material and an understanding of at least know what the dimension of a brick is. Because when I started studying architecture, that's the first thing you do. You draw a brick and you, you put the South African standard, what they call imperial brick. You put the dimensions on the brick and that becomes part of your memory and you keep on working with that brick. So a building's height is calculated by a brick. If you go to Louis Kahn's buildings at Amdabat, it's every brick was probably drawn at that time because every brick is important and it wants to be that in that space, in that building. Um, uh, Korea didn't do that many what we call face brick buildings where you can read the brick on the surface, but there are they are of those. You know, and I've got the books next to me of, of Korea, but they do exist. But but you'll find, for instance, Swiss architects like Mario Botta, that you can you can almost imagine that the, if you look at the a picture of a building that's built, that the drawing in the office was probably a very big drawing because you can see you need to be able to see every brick in that building. No one brick is cut. For me, that's craft because it's very easy to cut a brick and then plaster over it. You know, it's like just sort of smearing over it. But you you don't actually then appreciate the bones. It's like having makeup, but bad bones. You know, you have to have good bones and the makeup. You know, if one has to use, use a metaphor for that for that. So I think in India, maybe culturally, layering things, adding things because of a very deep history and an appreciation of the past. It's more part of your uh, outlook on how buildings are made, but I mean, I'm not going to, I'm not going to try and guess what that is, and I will learn more about that again when I'm in, in India. But I think even there, I'm sure you you are challenged, or the architects are challenged, and you have two camps. Um, and I've I've had a few discussions now with Peter Rich, a well-known South African architect, and others, and you know that there are these two camps emerging. The, the one camp which is more interested in what happens in Dubai, and then you've got another camp that's more interested in the in the way that, for instance, Doshi worked. And again, I'm not saying that I'm that that's necessarily correct, but we've got the same here. 
You know, there are people that studied with me that couldn't wait to get on a plane to go and work in Dubai. And then there are others that would like to work with the local communities, poor communities in our cities. Uh, so again, there's a dimension of craft. So if, you, if you're interested in craft, you're more interested in, in the person also that makes it. Uh, we, for instance, when I do a building, I love it when I go to a site, for instance, this campus with Kimberley, which is a fairly remote province of South Africa, Northern Cape. You challenge the local craftsman, and it's big buildings in a remote location, and you, you draw something, but you're not sure, quite sure if they can make it. But then you discuss it informally with the person. And it's amazing how people rise to the challenge, which is the craft of that thing. You know, a, a little steel bench that has a contour in it and whatever, and they don't have the tools or the software or whatever to put it into a, into a computer model, have it printed off-site, uh, whatever technology is used abroad, and then bring it to, to site. They actually have to make it with their hands still. So, and I think we're fortunate um, in South Africa to still very, to have a very uh, big component of that. In Europe, uh, they've got the cold, long winter months. So they prefabricate off-site in factories. It's a modular system, and they just clip the thing together, and four people can build the whole building. Whereas we build much slower, and you work with the local skills. They're often unskilled, low-skilled uh, uh, people that are that have aspirations in life in terms of their livelihood, their development, their pride. Um, and one has to do design for that. You know, you, you can't design in South Africa as if you're in Switzerland. Uh, and I think India, as far as I've been there before, I know it's somewhere in between because it's a very progressive country. It's become very progressive economically. It's an important global player. Um, so there's always going to be this pressure. And it's a tech-savvy country with a lot of people that understand technology and are very proficient at software development and so on. So I think it's an, it's an interesting debate to pursue further. Maybe we can have another podcast in the future just about that. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I you first of all answered one very old question which I had. Uh, when I was designing my house, uh, it's an apartment, but I was designing the interiors and uh, uh, the interior designer told me that we can put a veneer on this uh, uh, on this uh, plywood and it will look like teak. And I said, but I know that it's not a teak. And, and we were just like grappling with this question that is it the look or is it the craft or is it the integrity which the material itself has it? Yes. Uh, so yeah, yeah, I mean, you, you put it nicely and also it, if I'm not wrong, it also sort of improves the shelf life of anything that you build, if it's built slowly, steadily, and with like a lot of thought and craft. Is that correct? Absolutely. I mean, if you look at, at uh, Korea's uh, uh, building in Ahmedabad, one of his first buildings, the Gandhi Smarak, Gandhi it's Smarak. an old building, which is now, what, uh, 60, 70 years old, 60 at least. It's beautiful. It's it's more beautiful now than it was when it was built. And why I say that, things get a patina on it. There's a sort of aging of the surface of the concrete and the brick makes it more beautiful. Um, if if you have to keep it polished to remain beautiful, there's a problem with it. So you're dead right. If you design with honest materials, then not only do you feel better about what you've used? There's integrity to it. It's not a lie. It's not saying I'm wood, but I'm not actually. I'm talking about. So Louis Kahn's brick would be very unhappy if if it was pretending to be brick in Ahmedabad. These buildings there or in Dhaka. So uh, it's the same for us. Um, 
And again, I mean, you talk about uh, a veneer on, 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 on plywood. Sometimes people just stick it straight onto concrete, just a form onto a, onto a, uh, you know, just a, a piece of concrete floor. Uh, and so you, you can't, you can't actually fool even a light person because <laughs> your, your feet wants to feel the warmth of the timber. If you, if you walk on it bare feet, with bare feet, you don't want to do that on a piece of plastic that's saying I'm timber because it's going to be cold. It's lying to you and it's cold. It's literally cold, you know. So, so there's a direct relationship between integrity, lying, being honest, truthful, sustainable, and all of these things. Um, and, and I think timber is an interesting one because it's a renewable resource, uh, you know. So you can't even use that as an excuse that you can't use timber because, you know, concrete, you know, we all know concrete is problematic from a sustainability point of view. But still, you know, for me, you know, I'd rather use concrete than, you know, trying to use something that's pretending to be concrete, or I'd rather than use something else. We just we can't build from timber in South Africa because it's not possible. We don't have forests and so on. Um, I think it's more possible in other kind. I'm very excited by timber, taller timber buildings being built now and so on because that's taking it back to the craft and the integrity that I'm talking about, which doesn't lie. Tall buildings, 30, 40 stories, they're building now in timber. Which is which is amazing. It's fantastic news for me. Yeah, yeah, true, beautiful, cool. We'll move on to the next uh, sort of my personal topic. Uh, I, and what I'm sense so far is the definition of your minimalism or your sort of understanding is slightly different. So I will start there. That how do you define sort of minimalism, where or or especially the reductivist sort of approach yes. to architecture and just yes. to follow up on that uh, just before is that what i've seen is in sort of developing countries like us india or south africa uh, at least in our part of the geography people because they were uh, ruled by the british and and have seen poverty at a different scale and now the money is flowing in there's economic growth uh, there's a lot of fancy stuff, shiny stuff seen around. So they want that. Uh, and if you sort of build with like slightly different philosophy, how are, and that's why I said, how do you negotiate with this? Or how do you sort of acknowledge these needs and yet arrive at a beautiful architecture? Yes, I mean, that, that uh, point about wealthy people wanting things to be uh, glossy, the Rolex watch. You know, you're not going to just wear any watch. You want to, you want to have a Rolex. Um, <laughs> uh, that still uh, remains the exception because in a big country of, of, of more than a billion people now in India, uh, that still remains, and it's the same in South Africa. You know, the inequality is enormous, but but uh, I mean, it's it's the same all over the world. I've travelled a lot. I've been to places like Peru and so on, South America. Um, where you still realize, you know, through your travels and your research, and I've done a lot of uh, research in informal uh, communities and so on, I mean, that, that separation just becomes bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, so so the, just the fact that you, that you can do certain things doesn't mean that you must. And that's always my view of things. You know, so the fact that you can wear the Rolex watch doesn't mean that you have to wear the Rolex watch. <laughs> and for me, the other interesting thing is if you go to a city like London, for instance, um, is that they, they consist of, of row houses. Uh, they call them terrace houses. And, um, and, and many people are familiar with, uh, with, with London. Um, 
that is just something that's been there for centuries. It's, well, it actually comes from Victoria in the area, but it's also Georgian and so on. But there are so many wealthy people that just live in another house that looks like the neighbor. So they spend their money inside. They don't try to do fireworks on the outside with, with, with the house. <laughs> and anyway, they feel more comfortable with it because it's more private. It's more people don't latch onto you because you've got money. They don't harass you because you've money. So that's also a choice. You know, the way that people view their money and, and, and they desire to express it throughout the world, for, for a long time now, for instance, in the banking sector, banks like to compete because that's a product that's out there. And in India, you'll have all these banks. For them, it's important to say my bank headquarters is, is cooler, bigger, glossier than the other bank headquarters. So you always have that corporate uh, sort of um, iconic demand. Hmm. New York is built like that. L London's buildings are now built like that. Wealthy people from Dubai invest in London. They want to see their investment in London and boast about their building in London and so on. So the globalization has in a way accelerated that. It's become more pronounced. But for me, that those are that's like perfume bottles. A young girl, this famous urbanist from, from Denmark, always says, you know, the, the buildings in Dubai could be the perfume bottles on the shelf, you know, in the in the airport again. You know, we spoke about the tie earlier. Yeah. It's this thing that you take, you, you buy the perfume because you like the bottle. Not because of but the perfume, you know, it's, it's actually the perfume is almost, almost irrelevant. So, so sometimes it works for people that because the building is cool, that people bank there. If that works for the bank, that's fine. And I don't question that. That's just a business principle. But one shouldn't confuse that with what your brother, my sister, my mother wants for their house. They don't want that. They're not interested in that. Generally, people are not interested in that. So I think, again, now people study architecture. And the biggest mistake they make can make is to, to accept that 95% of people want that. That's not true. They, they, they view, uh, the average student's view of architecture should be more, more moderate. Because if it's all about becoming wealthy through architecture, I mean, I had people like that studying with me. They told me when they were studying, they're going to do marketing, master's degree afterwards. So then you market yourself all the time. You know, I'm the best architect, I'm the best architect, I'm the best architect, whatever. And you put stuff out there and they get clients for that. But it's usually not the clients that I want. For me, the clients that I aspire to having are people that are interested in the meaning behind architecture. And they're not all over. You have to actually go and find them or they find you. But if you give up in the first year of practice and say, I'm just going to do glossy buildings for a wealthy client, you're not, never going to get them, for me, the client that understands, appreciates meaning. And, and I, you spoke about Doshi when we started in the pre-interview discussion. And now Dosh is not going to be interested in a, in a skyscraper in Dubai, is he? No, he's going to be interested in, in the spirituality of the space and the meaning of the architecture. And he still holds on to And he's done that for decades now. Yeah. So as I said earlier, I'm a bit old school, but we can't deny that the other side exists. And people call that commercial architecture. When, when I had my first interview, there wasn't work in South Africa. It was the recession. And so they saw my drawings at the exhibition of the final year. And they, and they gave me an interview and I was so pleased I went to the interview and they said to me, but would you feel comfortable working in, a, working in a commercial practice like ours? I didn't even know what they meant because, and I know very well now what they meant because I know the practice quite well now. It's not about, I mean, I meant, mentioned to you earlier that I go back to buildings that I, that I design. A commercial architect generally is not really interested in it because they have to move on to the next one, the next one, and they build the machine and the machine has to be fed. 
So if you don't keep doing big buildings, you can't feed the machine. So the thing becomes, in a way, self-destructing. And uh, I mean, we haven't discussed my office. I've got a studio. Um, I could, you know, we could have grown to a much bigger practice, but I've purposefully decided I want to be involved more directly with my clients and my projects. So I'd rather do urban design work, which is more conceptual at a big scale. And some, and mostly the, the buildings are much smaller and not that many. We haven't done that many buildings. So, so sometimes to, to have two avenues, as you said, you do podcasts and you do this. And so this thing about having different interests in, in, in architecture is a healthy one to, yeah. to make music and do architecture. And that's interesting, you know, whatever way one does it. Or, or be an entrepreneur on the side, run an Airbnb establishment at home because it gives you more space in practice, that sort of thing. Whereas, as I say, if you're a corporate, that's what you are. You, you can just as well have been a, a lawyer firm if you do that sort of uh, architecture. But you can't pretend to be doshi. You can't say after 30 years, say, well, I, I do this, but I'm also doshi. <laughs> maybe you were a bit like doshi as a student of architecture and had some inspiring teachers and, and hung onto that belief for a period. But then you go into practice and that culture then is one which is very different. And again, I'm not saying that that shouldn't exist. There's a demand for it, but it's a choice for me as being not to be there. It's also been a choice for Charles Correa not to be there. I read how many projects he actually showed away the other day. That he said no for that project because there was something wrong in the mix of people that was involved. People then just say no, no. Just I'll just move on to the next project. And maybe he had that privilege of being of developing a profile in his lifetime that the that he had these choices. I, I know most architects don't have that that privilege, but. It's very, uh, I mean, it's all about integrity then to say that, you know, if we can't do it the right way, then we don't do it at all. Uh, and most architects can't say that. If, if I had five partners or eight partners and 40 people working for me, it's very difficult to say no because you have to think about how you keep this business afloat all the time. So, so I think maybe I've said enough about that. It's just, it's, it's a very interesting topic and we will, yeah. uh, you know, again, we can carry on forever. Yeah, yeah. In fact, I remember I had the fortune to do the 100th episode with B.V. Doshi and uh, uh, I asked him, why why do we see the same buildings and same steel flyovers and same glass buildings across uh, different small and big cities in India? And he articulated very beautifully. If I ever happen to write a book, I'll definitely put that as like <laughs> in the first question. He said, uh, because architects are no longer poets they are simply merchants of absolutely uh, something i don't know what but commodities yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. but but yeah. interesting you talk about uh, aerial views um, i think that's also something that's happened through technology yeah. people don't fly around you know we, we don't levitate we, we walk still walk on the ground at a certain pace you know yeah. 400 meters in five minutes that's the that is our for, for since eternity that's the way we've been moving yeah. now we've got software that 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 has us fly around and our clients want that from us but <laughs> but again that's not that's not any there's no taste of the quality of architecture by doing it like that it in fact just this distracts us from where it's important it's that point where the building meets the ground and the street and where you enter the building and that immediately you know with, with what you see on the ground within 100 meters is all that we are capable of, of people, we human. So to, to pretend that we are 
you know, extraterrestrials that have come back to Earth through the software is just not real, you know? So, because you get bored with that too. You know, if you fly through the thing four times, you've more or less seen it. And, you know, how many times do you want to do that? You know, because if you go to the airport, there's a new development and it's got this loop. And now it's been, you know, they've spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on this animation. But again, if there's no guarantee that if you go down into those spaces, like you would in a Korea building, that you would enjoy it. Uh, so the human scale starts becoming almost irrelevant in the way that we design uh, buildings in cities. Correct, correct. Yeah, I mean, this is a very fascinating topic because as even uh, in one of the other interviews I've covered, the Jane Jacobs philosophy of like uh, eyes on the street. So you need to be closer to everything actually. Uh, anyway, that will be like a different tangent. Um, so just moving forward on the minimalism uh, or, or sort of the reductionist uh, philosophy, uh, where do these ideas come from? I mean, uh, I usually thought that exposing bricks or exposing certain concrete was part of the aesthetics, but now you gave a different light to it. So can you can you just like tell us a bit about where do these ideas come from? Because when in in the in my understanding of minimalism, it's you you keep removing stuff and and. Uh, you almost reach to the function where the form is almost disappearing. Uh, mm. So how, how do you arrive at that or any anything that you can share about it? Yes, and I think it's, it's good that you, again, that you, you asked me that because you did write my definition of minimalism would be different to somebody else's. There's a, there's a British architect called John Pawson. If these buildings are published, they, they wipe, they cubist, they, they empty, uh, you know, so there's a there's an approach in architecture called minimalism, but my view is different, uh, and it comes from my urban design background again, which says you must do things incrementally. So you start with the minimum needed to provide what the need is, and it comes again. It's very much a develop developing country mindset, and then what you then do is you superimpose incrementalism on it. So you've got minimalism, incrementalism, meaning that you start. But the idea is that you engage in a process where things grow. So spatially, it's minimalist. Material, material in terms of material, it's, it's minimal. And and you've, you've uh, we've mentioned the word reductivist too to say that to make things affordable and not to wait, rather start um, and and start small. There's a saying that we use in Cape Town. One of the famous urban designers here uses the term start small, but in the biggest possible way. Because often you just need that spark. You just need that, that we, this is actually happening. You know, it's not, we're not going to wait forever. Even if the money's not there, let's do something. And then you, and then you keep on building on it. So, so that thing about it, and it's very relevant in the context of housing, for instance. It, it's relevant in the context of campus building. Uh, for instance, I mentioned this, this, this campus that I've been very active in, uh, in the Northern Cape, where the first buildings were built around a square. So, so there's a big plan for the campus, but what the, what the minimalist approach was there, we first have to shape the square. I can, I can mark the square out on the ground and I can put posters of buildings to be built around the square on it as a minimalist step. In other words, you, you put the paving in, you plant the trees, you invite the politicians, they unveil the campus, you know, it's happening. And there are pictures of buildings on the edge of the square, for instance, but they're not built yet. But then you build the first buildings that it supports the square. And it's really interesting to go to Kimberley now, to this town, because 
the students love that space because it's a very uh, sort of um, uh, diluted town which is dispersed and pulled apart through apartheid and so on. So it's not a, a very cohesive environment. So the campus played a very important role, the new campus, through minimalism to establish place. To say what is place, and it's not a place which is a building's foyer or an auditorium or whatever, it's the little public square. Um, and in fact, if you go to ancient places without the agora, the sort of the marketplace, it wasn't a trade route. And the trade route, the, 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 the square would be there before most of the buildings. And because of the energy of people, the value got added to that place. And then they started building more and more and more. That is also minimalism and incrementalism. So, so you, you re rely on the energy of people to create that impetus, that initial catalyst to build. And that's where your minimalism starts. But that is also being transferred into my architecture. You know, if a, if a client comes to me with a house and they've got a site and the site is bigger than the house that they want and can afford um, to build now, you say to them, let's do the whole plan, but what is the minimum that we can build for you to be able to live in this house and feel comfortable in it? So the minimalism even applies at the scale of a house. If it's a if it's a, a affordable house for a poor community, the same. It's a starter home. It's interesting, again, in Korea's work and many other people that work with, with poor communities that you start... Again, sometimes they just start with the services, um, as site and services, and they plug, and that's also a minimalist thing. So, just to come back to your question in the beginning, it's not really about building; it's about urban design, space, progress, incrementalism. And so, uh, you know, we, if we again, if we talk about the competition, we may touch on it again because some 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 things might actually be metaphysical. You just suggest something; they're not actually real; they're not built. And that's also a component of minimalism. Uh, you know, so, so that is something that will challenge the, the competitors to say, what is, what is, you know, I'm not saying that that's what, what everybody should be doing, the students, are, because they're other educators too. They shouldn't be designing for what I think. But uh, in that context, there would also be a lesser and a greater minimalist approach. Uh, and for instance, what would be the minimum that Korea would be happy with? Uh, Say so, so you say, if, if yet, you know, adjudicate this um, and, and say, well, this is the building I did then, you know, I, I'm generous, you know, let's give the young designer the chance, you know, what would be the minimum that he would be happy with that he would say, this hasn't in a way compromised the building that I've designed, that hasn't compromised the setting, it actually does exactly what it should be doing, it's not trying to, again, impress anybody because, again, I mean, that building of these there is quite understated, you know, it's, it's a very low-slung, simple, understated building. And it brings us back to the perfume bottle. You know, if you put a perfume bottle in front of the building, maybe that's not the right approach. You know, you ask me. That's a subjective view. Hmm. It's, I, I'm, I'm getting, like, like, so many ideas here because of your, like... Yeah, I mean... Um, so what I've understood uh, from this is... You, you basically start with like something really fundamental, but does it like just land up in framework and, and or, or some sort of a template or some sort of a basic structure and then let the space organically grow on its own? Is that what you're pointing to? Uh, absolutely. I think often for undergraduate students, it's very difficult to grasp the concept of a framework. And it's like, it's like music, you've got the bars, 
and then you put the notes in and, and that can happen in different ways. So you're not you're not closing down everything. All you're saying is that there needs to be a rigor. Your point of departure needs to be solid. And if you design, for instance, say you design um, uh, an auditorium or a stadium, there are certain things that is going to be part of a framework very early there. And that's the functional side of it. You know, we, we call it the secret herbs and spices sometimes. You know, a stadium, if you don't design that right, you can't see the people playing sport. Um, so that is essentially a framework. In a city, the framework is essentially the street pattern, which is the infrastructure that goes in first. But if you do that wrong, the whole city suffers in the way that you do it. So if you go to New York, for instance, New York is, a, and everybody knows New York, it's a very simple grid, which is just, it's, I mean, it's the same grid right across the Manhattan Island. But it doesn't mean that that every corner looks the same, every street's the same. You know, it's you turn a corner, it's a different place because of the way that the buildings have responded. And then at some point, part of the grid is removed and you've got central parking there. That's a very good example of a framework which comes through infrastructure. If you relate, and it's while well, we've got the discussion on, on Korea, I've really enjoyed revisiting Korea's work. So often he starts with a with a with a checkerboard. It's like just like a grid. A square grid, a simple grid where X and Y is the same dimension. That is his framework. That gives him sanity. It gives him something to work with. And to craft, bring us back to craft. It looks on plan very simple, but if you go into it, the fact that he's set that order gives him the freedom to then manipulate that order. He moves things up, he moves them down, deletes some of the squares, and he creates serendipity in the space. So, so the, the, the minimalist origin in that case is this very simple chessboard. And it is that game of pieces moving around. And that piece is you and I moving in that space. So, so, the, so, so it's profound. And, it, and it, architects don't generally work like that. You know, if you do a skyscraper, you have to because that column grid has to go all the way. The Burj Arab, I mean, that building has to have a grid. You can't ignore it. But what I'm saying is on the scale of the careers, which is typically... Um, often small to medium scale, sometimes big buildings, like a, a tall building in New York and included. They, 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 I mean, they, that's almost universal. You know, he did this, uh, as I mentioned earlier, this um, Gandhi Smarak in Ahmedabad. Hmm. If you look at the plan, it's, it's a very simple grid. And if you look at the architects, there's a series of canopies sitting over it. That's minimalism. I look at these, these pictures and there's a student in my office here has just come back from India, and she said she, she went all over. She was on a travel scholarship. It's just it's just coincidental you know, that that she just came back, and so she's inspired me even greater. I'm so excited about coming to India. But she says, of everything she's seen in India, this was her favourite. And I'm looking at these pictures, and it's so poetic. Talking about uh, Doshi's uh, sort of, uh, and it's and it's poetic for me because it's minimalist. What I see here is the texture that we spoke about earlier in the material. You see the quietness of the water, which is very typical of Indian architecture and the Hindu temples and so on, which I've visited in Goa in the past. So there's something very sort of significant. And if you ask me where this was, I would probably say it's in India. So there's a very strong connection. But it's mm. it's very minimalist and it's got the framework. So then I based through this whole book. This is the Kenneth, Kenneth Frampton book, the famous book on, 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 uh, on Korea, which I bought in, in India, incidentally. It was just published when I was last there. But I mean, you, you then go through the, the whole book and all the work is done and they all have that in common. So while we're on that topic, I mean, it's, 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 if students that participate in the, in the competition don't uh, read that, then there's something fundamentally that they're missing. Because 
I just reminded myself of our fundamental values in his work. And that's for me the beauty of it, is that sort of framework, minimalist origin, and then and there's a game. There's a game to be played. And I can see him in his office, you know, uh, when he was still alive and practicing, that he would do this and with people around him, he would actually move things around. And he would say, let's move it here and move it there. And let's imagine what the space will be that we create. And let's move this up. And so sometimes the space needs a bigger floor plate Therefore, you need to lift the ceiling and the roof to make the floor relative to the height. And he was an absolute master of that. At that. You know, if you go to his tower building in Mumbai, I love that building. You know, it's just the, for me the most, and I can't, I actually can't get my head around it. It's so sophisticated. It's like villas in the sky. And I mean, those wow. are exclusive. We talked about the Rolex watch earlier. You know, if, wow. if, if I could afford a Rolex watch, you know, I would also like to live in one of those apartments because... I can just imagine sitting there on the 15th floor and I live in a villa which has a step floor and it feels like I'm on the ground. The way that he's actually, in, but again, the origin is that very simple grid that runs right through the tower. But then he engages in this game of subtraction. You start that thing, the chest, and he subtracts. He doesn't add. So it brings us back to your point earlier about minimalism, layering, complexity, and so on. So within that minimalist order, people bring their own complexity and he empowers them and allows them to do it. He doesn't say, you can't, you can't paint a mural on my wall. Because a, a, a minimalist in Switzerland and in London would say that. You know, you can't touch this thing. You know, you, your shoes have to be white, your, your trousers, your shirt and your tie. You know, you can't change that. Where that's not what Korea would do. He would say, okay, well, that's just the start. Now come with your whatever. And, you, and and those murals I love because it's got a sense of humor. It wasn't done by him, and yeah. he trusted people to paint to paint on his building, you know, which is great. And yeah. again, we will do that in South Africa too. Peter Rich, my colleague, who's uh, actually introduced me to to uh, uh, the people um, to uh, Professor Nandana and so on. I mean, his work is also like that, you know, sort of. And it's in, in our context, mural painting is very African. It's something that people embellish and it gives them the personality, their own personalities then on their on their building, which is a clay building and then they paint on it in the ballet culture that Peter uh, sort of explored quite extensively. So there's a, therefore, for us, that there's a very direct connection, but it's also not happening generally in this country. People also want Rolex watches. You know? so, so that, I mean, that's universal. That's just part of globalization that people, you know, they, because they see it, they want it. You know? <laughs> it's all over. Yeah. No, so I think I'll, I'll skip the next question because I think somehow I connected the dot uh, of because you have a framework, because you, you give the, the, you keep the exploration bit and, and the place to organically evolve, it automatically becomes timeless because it's constantly mm -hmm. evolving. So I, I was going to ask you like, one of uh, Ur, uh, Urba's sort of philosophy is in search of timeless qualities. I think uh, yeah. I could I could connect the dot. So I'll ask one last yeah. question about uh, the the philosophy, and then we'll move to the last sec the last piece of of, of Charles Korea bit. So how do you sort of I mean if you keep reducing, uh, there is a chance of ev no actually that's also void now because you're letting people do everything. <laughs> yeah beautiful uh all right i think we'll we'll move on to the uh, charles korea bit is that like when did you hear about uh korea first and and uh, how has 
your work been influenced or any any things that you have learned from uh korea's work which you would like okay, to share yeah um it's i think the the fact that i've been been invited to adjudicate is not coincidental i think um the the people of mindspace architects um uh there was a there's a post on 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 youtube uh, a talk that i gave um and it's very really much about the questions you've just asked and and i think there's a for me there's a connection of my work with korea um my first uh, uh sort of real serious engagement with his work was as a master of urban design student at university of of, of the witwatersrand which is you do it i mean obviously after doing architecture um two years after graduating i came back at that course um and then i discovered um korea's work and i mean i'd seen a bit of it at, as an undergraduate um but then something significant happened i was invited to design a business school um in in janesburg it was actually a competition uh, and um uh, and there were five entries and the the professor said to me that he wants something african you know he wants something which is uh, of africa and if people visit um and the, the architecture then as we discussed in in janesburg which is a, sort of also connected to the world network of, of global cities is also this thing about glossy glitzy buildings and so on so there's very little of that sort of thing being built uh, at any level uh, to korea type architecture uh, but the professor was well traveled and i then went to a conference in goa the commonwealth association of architects conference 19 1997 so i was there um and the conference was in charles grey's hotel the five star hotel there the sedare de goa beautiful hotel um i come back it's just a coincidence i'd already been invited to to participate in the competition actually with a big practice because i'd won competitions before so they you know it's, it's just part of my my history of my practice is, is, is competition so they said wouldn't you like to do the concept for us and if we win it then you know we will help you build it um and that sort of thing has worked for me quite well in my practice staying small but then working with bigger practices but controlling the concept but i then bought this book i'd been to the conference and i'd never uh, listened to korea speak they they before the internet really um youtube and so on <laughs> which i've now caught up you know it's really nice to go back um I bought the book and I was there and I was just completely infatuated by Carrera's work and I saw this building this institute that the the subject I walked past that building quickly went into that there wasn't much time because it all was all about the conference um and then I came back and I said to this professor uh, look at this book here look at this fantastic work and he said to me yes Sammy loves India he's been there and he's been to conferences there himself and he referred to the red fort and so on and, and, and so we were on the same page wow. from day one i already won the competition but with a different design it was it was different because the brief was more classical and so in a way i mean so i gave him what he wanted for the competition um and then afterwards i just started influencing you know the word influence is not new because that's what i did then in any case so, so i then bought him a copy i ordered a copy for him and he was then equally infatuated so that building unfortunately we can't share that now is very korea i mean in the way that we worked with the space the courtyards the sequencing all those elements in it very simple materials but but spatially and it's and it's become a very it's it was a new business school it's become a very popular business school and and i you know and it's quite nice for me for people to say they like studying there because of the spaces and the choices and i mean the things that are really important in architecture but 
again, in terms of minimalism, incrementalism, it was built in four phases. So again, we started building a, a quad, lawn quad like Correa's buildings, and then we started adding, and it was a, used to be a suburban area. So what happened, it used to be, they bought four suburban stands of equal size, and we built the minimum. There was only so much money, and this thing has grown. And I was in, I've been involved in all those phases growing the thing. It's been an absolute delight. This thing about a building being a small city, that's exactly, and it's exactly the same as Grows. Well, these buildings are also small cities. In any case, so I came back to South Africa, and then then, then I, I went to Vitz for a lecture that Correa He then came to South Africa because he was um, on the competition jury for the Constitutional Court. Um, we participated, didn't win that competition. But it was great to see Correa then at Vitz giving his talk. Um, and then many years later, I, when I was doing my PhD, was in London. And so I went to the London School of Economics and I told all, the, all my fellow students, we must go listen to Charles Correa. He was in Oxford. We all went on, to, on the bus and we went to go and listen to him again. And that was for me profound because, I mean, you mentioned Doshi, I really love, you know, I, I, I speak very fast and I say a lot. You know, just the, the way that he spoke, he could have spoken in London about all his work. He didn't do that. Mm. He just spoke about a very small aspect of his work, like Doshi would also do. And I really admire that uh, in your good architects, that they've got that ability to distill and then talk meaningfully about the war or the whatever i mean some subject topic within it um, <laughs> we've to an extent done it today the fact that you've you've focused on minimalism is great for me because usually it's just mixed up with a lot of other things so we've been focusing on that but that's the background to korea um so and i've been to go but i haven't seen that many buildings so i'm really looking forward to after the competition to, to travel a bit and see more of his work in, in other cities this uh this amazing building, you can't call it a building, it's like the landscape in, in Bhopal. It's always fascinated me, these terraces, um, beautiful structure. But in any case, that's my connection with Korea. It's actually quite, uh, and, I, and, I, and this book is always on the surface in my office, this Kenneth Frampton book. Hmm. It's so beautiful. And I'm also always inspired and in awe, actually, of, of knowing that how these sort of legends are able to zoom in and zoom out uh, so so effortlessly and uh, if you if you like listen to Doshi's uh, interviews he's just talking about like very very mundane stuff in a very highly spiritual sense uh, like the wall itself is talking and the shelf is like trans transforming itself every time you look at it so yeah it's, it's very fascinating <laughs> uh, all right, Henry, I think uh, I'll have one last question, which is sort of a cheat code uh, for the students if they are listening uh, for so long, uh, whenever this goes live, is that um, at the drawing board, uh, they are supposed to design a memorial for Charles Korea. Uh, any tips or any sort of cheat code that you can give? What will be your judging criteria? or any, any specific Charles Korea pattern are you looking forward to? Uh, anything that, that will help uh, uh, the listeners, whoever are, is participating? Yes. Firstly, I must say, uh, I listened to a, uh, a clip, uh, Sanjay of uh, Mindspace Architects gave these views, and I, I've been looking up. That was very good. Um, so if the students haven't listened to that yet, which is on the website, um, you know, I think they should all do that. 
Um, my view of, of uh, the brief is, firstly, the brief is very interesting in the fact that it doesn't actually pin down uh, use. I mean, they don't, uh, what we call a program in architecture. It doesn't say three rooms and this and that and the other. Um, I, I do think that what is important, and just looking at the existing building and what it is, uh, it's this performing center and it's, a, it's sort of an overlapping arts uh, facility, which is um, from performing art to... It's a Lalit Kala Academy, right, in Goa? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So it's got all these these um, uses in it, which which immediately suggests there's always space for more because it's 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 uh, so uh, just in terms of program, the fact that that's there doesn't mean that there can't be a really nice place to do an aspect of art within it. Um, because I think again, I mean, just linking it back to the use of the that's one way of looking at. The other way is to say, well, maybe it's completely contrasting, and so. The fact that the brief is so open-ended, but we've got a there's a site and there's a there's a CAD drawing with a with a blue block on it that says that you have to work in that space there. So just bringing it back to framework, the framework's there with Correa's building, but there's also this thing that Correa put the building down and between the road and the river. Um, I don't know if there's a flat plane, but there's a gradual progression from the building to the river in the way that the building steps down and what in typical Korea fashion, the building frays at its edges. So, so it's more solid at the core and it's almost like it's being opened up at the end. And Korea puts it beautifully, he says, it's designed like a breezeway and his hotel is, is the same. Uh, and we don't have that in South Africa. So I'm so jealous, you know, because everything gets secured, closed, gated, there are security guards and so on. Um, this building, um, and as my year out student here says, the buildings that what she really loves about these buildings is that you can actually step off the street, go through them, move through them, and there's a continuity. So, I mean, there are things that are dynamic to work with. And, and you've listened to my philosophy throughout this podcast. It's always going to be that becomes part of, of something bigger. And also because Korea was such a uh, great contextualist, because again, it almost looks like that building has always been there. It's so settled, it sits so comfortably on its side, it relates so comfortably to the street, to the river. Um, and so, you know, one must, be, one must be careful to block it, to, to retain that transparency, uh, fluidity of form, which in a way becomes non-building. It's, it's, like it's like a tree canopy, the building, hmm. uh, which is this breezeway. And then within it, underneath, there are these activities where people do art. And so that structure should, in my view, be a continuation of that spirit. Because, again, we said earlier, if Correa had to evaluate this, some entries would upset him, you know, some others he would be sort of, you know, undecided about, and others would really inspire him in an, in an unexpected way. And I think we all, as, as a jury, um, that's what we want. We want to be, without preempting it, uh, you've got a very open brief, and you, we're going to have a lot of entries. And, and, and the, the format is that, the, the jury, us, you know, me, um, Professor Balsawa and so on, yeah. we just involved in the last 10. Hmm. So the sifting will happen with us not involved. So, but I'm sure it's, it's going to be quite, it's either going to be quite diverse or the, the shortlist will, in a way, sort of support specific ideas uh, that that comes from the, uh, from, from the practice um, uh, from, yeah, so yeah, from... Yeah. Uh, Mindspace architects. Correct. Yeah, I mean, it's it's even I would urge all the students to listen to uh, the video by Sanjay Mohe. Uh, it's it's like 
is put in very beautifully all right i think uh, this is a good note to end this uh, thanks thanks henry for sharing your interesting take on minimalism on architecture it was really fascinating and and uh, looking forward to meet in person very soon in pune thanks thanks for giving your time it was an absolute pleasure and, and thanks for the line of of questioning i really enjoyed it awesome thanks thanks for listening uh, till the end uh, again a quick note the drawing board brings you a competition for undergraduate architecture students who can submit their project ideas on theme of designing a memorial for charles korea last day to submit your concept is 1st october 2022 more details in show notes and the drawing board.in thank you bye and that's it from today's gyan session for show notes and more gyan visit audiogyan.com and if you wish to connect with me i am at audiogyan moments on instagram Until then, take care. Hello! It's been a great week on the IBM Podcast Network. On this round is on me. Gauri is joined by Shweta Nanda. They talk about the financial independence and how it is to be a woman entrepreneur. On Anish thing, Anish welcomes ultra marathon runner Shivani Gharat. Shivani shares her journey of how she ran her first marathon, the mindset of a runner, and what it actually takes to run a full marathon. On Cock and Bull, Cyrus, Naveen, Akash, and Shreyas talk about the Korean band BTS serving in the military and its repercussions. On Think Fast, Varun and Suchita discuss Wing Greens and their latest acquisitions and about the Indian sexual wellness market. And on Shuni One, Sheila Dutta is joined by Dinika Bhatia. CEO and founder of Nati Gritties. They talk about coming from a business family and Dinika's journey in creating healthy and guilt-free snacking. Once again, don't forget to visit our merch store on ivmpodcasts.com. We have some exciting new merch out there for you. Also, do follow us on social media. We are IVM Podcasts on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And do remember to spread the word about these shows and any other shows you might be listening to. appreciate them rate them and review them wherever you are listening to them you can also check out all our other shows on youtube.com/ivmpodcasts and finally we would like to thank our sponsors this week volvo xc40 recharge bumble heads up for tails kotak privy league program and hdfc mutual fund thanks guys without you this would not be possible Do you often find yourself surrounded by conversations about web3, blockchain, NFTs, DAOs? What are these terms and how do they affect our future on the internet? So many questions, but don't worry, we've got answers to all your questions. Hi, I'm Eklavya Bhattacharya and on our show Future Proofing, we try to decode the impact of these future technologies on various industries with experts and tech enthusiasts. Tune into new episodes coming out every Thursday on the IBM Podcast app and the website or wherever you get your podcasts from.